Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. What is up? Well, you're not in the same room as me, is what's what's up. up? (laughs) What is up? Do you want to explain what? I'm looking at you. Honestly, it's like that John Hurt film of 1984 in which the face of Big Brother appears on a screen in front of me. You're before a mosaic of 45 single... Is that is it wallpaper or is it actually no, it's, it's, singles? It's wallpaper of, of singles. 45 discs uh, on various yes. record labels, but <clears throat> all the identifying features... Uh, like the 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 catalogue or the name of the band or name of the artist has been removed. I imagine that's a copyright thing. I was listening to a, a, a t- I've I've become really fascinated by early Ten CC. I know this is um, sounds like a diversion, mm. but so I was listening to um, Clockwork Creep. Have you ever heard Clockwork Creep? Is that sheet music? Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, but okay. So did you know? And sorry again. You know that on the uh, the album version of I'm Mandy Fly Me, I don't know whether it's on the single yeah, no, version. No, it's not. It's only on the album uh, version. They'll never it's only on the album the version. Yeah. One of these again, because what goes up must come down, 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 boom. So I, for some reason, I had never realised that that was Clockwork Creep. I always thought it was, well, actually, I don't even know what I thought it was. So then I was listening to sheet music, and then there was a thing in sheet music about... So there was about in that very 10 cc way about i'm a single i'm a you know i'm a 45 with a whole why won't you play me or something That's the or worst other, band in, in the that world, very kind of track. worst band in the world thank you very much and then it led into that and i suddenly thought this is going to turn into i'm mandy fly me and then it didn't and then i realized then i realized for the first time i don't know how i've gone this long in my life without realizing that the beginning of i'm mandy fly me is actually the refrain from Clockwork Creep, and my mind was blown. And just looking at that montage behind you, put me well, in the mind other side. <clears throat> the other side of that wall, Child Three is asleep, um, uh, and the other side of uh, another wall. The reason I, the reason I'm not in the studio is because the good lady ceramicist here indoors has done her back in, and so did she overly enthusiastically throw a pot. Yes. Well, no, but it's all in. You know, that bone is connected to the other bone. So therefore, <clears throat> there have been uh, yeah. the yes, there have been medical issues arising. But um, yes, for older older listeners and viewers, 
will look at an orange label and go, well, that's definitely CBS. And then there's a blue and silver one, which is definitely Fontana. And there's a yellow one, which is definitely Epic. But they've taken all those identifying marks off because it would have cost too much money, I think. The one I remember, it, Rack used to be a yacht yeah. on a on a on a on a blue sea, and then there was Bell, which silver. was silver, and Shiwadi Wadi were on Bell. I always have to mention that Reckless Eric said that Shiwadi Wadi deserved to have a tribute band called Shoddy Wadi. That is actually very good. Which I think is one of Reckless Eric's finest <laughs> jokes. And Polydor, who all the Rebets records were on, they were red. We could do this forever now. We could just do what colour is the your favourite record labels. <laughs> the idea of record labels is what such an old-fashioned idea anyway because there are like only two anyway and uh, and all the rest of them are kind of all folded into each other. And all the Bowie <laughs> albums were RCA, which were orange. RCA was orange, wasn't it? Yes. And the Comsat Angels were on Polydor. Well, anyway, this is... I this know, I've lost most of the audience. the thing audience. is, I am sitting here thinking this feels like lockdown because I haven't done one of these since the last, you know, since COVID and um, you were stuck in some dungeon somewhere. <clears throat> no, I was stuck in Ali's house. Yeah, but not to start with you. Well, no. <clears throat> well, du- well, yeah, well, no, during COVID, that's right, because during COVID I wasn't allowed into Ali's house because that was the whole point. So if I was stuck in the room that I did all that broadcasting from during that period of lockdown in which we did all the shows from there, and, and in fact, we even did a TV show with you in yes. your living room and me in my office. My office doesn't exist anymore because the good lady professor her indoors decided that we needed a bigger kitchen and my office was part of the kitchen because you remember that regularly we'd have to stop recording because she'd turned the kettle on and you could hear it through the wall. So she decided that the way to solve that problem was to knock the wall down and make the office part of the kitchen. So I no longer have an office. That doesn't sound like like progress to you? Well, no, but, you know, it's the dog has actually got a, a space, a designated space that's bigger than any space that I have. If, if I'm... The cat's got a whole room. Mm. When the dog moved, when we got the new dog, because the cat is such a scaredy cat, the good lady professor her indoors said, oh, well, in that case, we'll give the cat that room. There's a whole room in our house. I'm only just now realising this as I'm saying it. The cat, who is so small, she can sit on your hand, has got a room that you... That's the biggest room in the house, and I don't have an office. You've been done, mate, you have. I've been done. Um, <clears throat> I know that you pledged allegiance to the band because you texted me. I did, as, of Mr. Schneebly. Yes. Um, I, I thought that was that was an entertaining moment, actually. So. <clears throat> it was very good. And I, I stood up in front of the television and did it. I pledged allegiance to the band of Mr. Schneebly and will not fight him for creative control, control. of the band. <laughs> And we'll defer to him on all matters related to the musical direction of the band. And in fact, funnily enough, doing that, I think, lasted about the same time as everyone else was swearing allegiance to whatever it was that they were swearing allegiance well, to. <clears throat> so two thoughts on that. One, uh, Child 3, Asleep Behind uh, That Wall. Uh, when they when they moved the, um, the screens to do the intimate... To do the anointing. anointing of oil. The anointing. When they did that, just, Child 3 just sort of bowled in and went, what are they doing? I said, well, this is the private bit, you know, for subscribers only. If you, you know, you can only see inside if, <laughs> if you pay three ninety nine a month. That's the, that's the take two of the coronation, right. was it? And he said, wouldn't it be funny if they removed the screens and both the archbishop and the king were dead and, they, and they'd be what? murdered and we'd all been watching, but nobody knew how. 
And they said, there well, that's your next book. So I thought, <clears throat> I mean, I to be honest. I thought you were going to say, so. wouldn't it be funny if they removed the thing and they were playing Twister? <laughs> or, like, you know. or, or just smoking and playing cards. <laughs> that's right. Oh, right, are we on? Like Morecambe and Wise when they did those kind of rotating <laughs> stages. Um, my favourite bit of the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, is actually the day before. And it's got quite a lot of press. We'd been to see a show in uh, the glittering West End of London. And on the way back, um, on the Tube platform, the tannoy, you know, is warning you about wet weather. And then King and the King and Charles. Queen say, um, all the best for your ongoing journey. And then Camilla says something else. And then it finishes with King Charles saying, and please, mind, mind the gap. It was, I mean, it was <laughs> surreal. Absolutely surreal. <clears throat> in no other country would the head of state warn you about the gap between the platform and the step to get on the train. I know. It makes you proud, yeah, doesn't it? <clears throat> I thought it was quite fun. Meanwhile, meanwhile, across the pond, the uh, Republican frontrunner yes. for the presidency has been has found it? guilty. Um, I know it's the wrong word, isn't it? You have to say, a New York jury found that Trump sexually abused and defamed former columnist E. Jean Carroll in I a civil trial. That. He was also found liable for defamation over claims from October that uh, her claim was a hoax yes. and a lie. He's been ordered to pay $5 million, around $4 million in damages to Carol. Um, but of course, the Republicans are all standing behind him, as are all the, uh, you know, the fanatical Christians, because he appears to have only broken three commandments in that particular thing. So they they don't particularly care about that. Novel, novel way to go into an election, though. Uh, literally, you now have somebody who has been found legally liable for sexual abuse and defamation. But hey, what's coming up on the show a little bit later on, <laughs> Mark? What are you going to be reviewing? We'll be reviewing some films. Uh, I'm going to be reviewing uh, Plan 75, which is a very interesting Japanese movie. There is a Michael J. Fox documentary called Still, a Michael J. Fox film, and uh, The Eight Mountains. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I do, uh, I'll try not to cough. I do have control of my microphone button, and I will try not to um, use it that often. Uh, anyway, also, extra takes, because um, your other take, which has arrived with this one as a companion piece... We'll have at least an extra 90 minutes of this total garbage. Uh, new feature, weekend watch list um, and a weekend not list. One film to video plus over the weekend and one to avoid. Take it or leave it, you decide. This week is Colin from Accounts, uh, which is very splendid on um, BBC iPlayer at the moment. And um, what are your extra re reviews going to be in the extra take, Mark? My extra reviews in the extra take uh, are going to be, he said, grabbing his paper. Oh, Brainwashed, Sex Power Camera, which is a documentary about uh, the, well, the visual aesthetics of film in relation to gender and misogyny. And, uh, oh, we're doing The Eight Mountains in take two, so I was lying about the first bit. Oh, no, but we're doing Book Club It's almost in the first like part. you like, haven't like, everything completely before. wrong. I, yeah, but, you know, it's because I moved things around because originally I thought, yeah, so Book Club, the next chapter is going to be in the first part. because I'm not in the same studio making sure that there I know, is any kind and of so therefore I'm literally left alone with my own script. And obviously we're recording this show on Wednesday, so I'm still kind of, you know, just... Punch uh, drunk. Still in that, still in that post-verdict haze. Pretentious Moir is currently Mark Kermode 13, Mark Kermode 12. Um, so that'll be uh, ongoing. Um, we'll do a one-frame back. Shrink the Box with Ben Baby-Smith and Sasha Bates is also ad-free on Tuesdays, alongside all your other extra content on The Take channel. 
You can also find Shrink the Box wherever you get your podcasts. Next is going to be Tanya from The White Lotus. You can support us via Apple Podcasts or head to extratakes.com for non-fruit-related devices. And if you are already a vanguardista, as always, we salute you. <clears throat> I'm going to try my very hardest to stay on page. Okay, well, we're now on page eight. No, I know, but I'm just saying in general, because obviously we're doing this at remote control and I understand that. I mean, this is kind of proof of the fact that the joke about Mark can't read a script is not a joke. Mark evidently cannot read a script, despite the fact that it literally very clearly says on this piece of paper, take one, book club the next chapter. So I don't know why I didn't the, get that. This is all on uh, on YouTube and everything. You know, it's, it's a shame that I have to be in close-up and you're in sort of widescreen. Which I, well, I, well, I don't think it's I don't think it's very nice. So I am actually going to be. I can't see your face though. You're hiding behind a that microphone. That's the whole point of having a big microphone is to hide your face behind mm. it. I continue yeah. to do that. Um, anyway, <clears throat> before eight. we get to some uh, reviews, eight. yeah, an email eight. from Got Martin in Chalton. At 13 minutes into Ted Kravitz's behind-the-scenes piece for Sky Sports F1 at this weekend's Miami Grand. Oh, sorry, Miami Grand Prix. I wonder what I was going to say there. <laughs> Here he is discussing the new Brad Pitt Formula One movie. It's a storyline in itself. Uh, they will get start racing it or start doing it at circuits in uh, a, 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 not a live track because they'll be the only people uh, on track. So if they go and run some laps in Silverstone, so if you see a funny car with some cameras, some, uh, what are they, Pete, Sony, uh, some, some 4K, 8K, 6K, Venice, are they called Venice cameras, yeah? I think they're the ones that Joseph Kaczynski used in uh, in Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick. Uh, and um, they're, they're on the halo, they're around the car, they've got different... Well, there you go. So, conclusive proof uh, that the aforementioned Ted Kravitz is definitely a Van God Easter, because you can't say Top Gun Maverick without their echo, so... So Martin in Chalton, thank you for spotting that. Fans of Formula One, by the way, there is a superb new podcast which takes you inside Oracle Red Bull's F1 team. It's available in all the usual places and executive produced with Elan, Style and Panache. It do say here, uh, which makes me slightly suspicious that we know uh, why he's actually not here because the redactor is not here either. He says he's got a medical appointment, but actually he's working on his Formula One po podcast. Great. <laughs> done already. Do you remember that time that we went to Formula One? <clears throat> we did a show from Formula One and somebody said to me, have you ever seen Formula One? I said, no, no, I've never been. So what was it? Was it good? Where were we? What was the track? It was the British Grand Prix at um, a Grand Prix track. Can't remember where it was. Yeah. Anyway, it was, so it was some. It was some big racetrack. I want to say Goodwood, just because Silverstone, and um, and we were in a sort of porter cabin, and we were broadcasting from the porter cabin, and that was the one in which Jensen Button came in, and we were reviewing stuff that was out, and we asked him about whether he'd seen Shrek. I think it was maybe Shrek Two. And he said, "Yeah, that film didn't make any sense because in the end she decided to be ugly." And it was like, it was a very yeah, revealing answer. I thought. I think you missed yeah. the point of that. Anyway, somebody said, have you ever seen Formula One? And I said, well, no. I mean, I've, I've obviously never, no. So he said, well, do you want to go and stand by the track and go and see Formula One? And I went, all right, fine, you know. So I went and stood by the track, and it went like this. Nyew! Nyew! That was it. It was just like, 
Okay. I'm not sure you've. I'm not sure you, you stand captured there and there's something goes past you really, really fast. <laughs> Formula One. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> so uh, look out for that podcast if that's the kind of thing that you like. Let's do a movie review. Uh, you've got three minutes. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. That right. That puts me on. So, Plan Seventy Five, which is a, Plan Seventy Five, which is a Japanese drama directed by Chia Hayakawa, who was one of the co-directors of a 2018 film called Ten Years Japan, in which uh, the filmmakers imagined what Japan would be like in 10 years later. And her segment was called Plan 75, which was about a government plan to deal with the aging population, essentially through, you know, euthanasia. The film is an extension, the feature film is an extension of that idea. It starts with an off-screen murder being played out to the sound of piano music, blurred visuals in the foreground, in the background, and you you hear something going on in the background, and then you just see a blood-splattered man walk into the foreground. And then you hear this voice say, the surplus of seniors is draining Japan's economy and taking a heavy toll on the young generation. Surely the elderly don't want to be a blight on our lives. The Japanese have a long, proud history of sacrificing themselves to benefit the country. I pray that my courageous act will trigger discussion and a future that's brighter for this nation. And then we see the man shoot himself. It then jumps forward in response to a wave of hate crimes against the elderly, the government have introduced Plan 75, which is a plan which offers assisted dying to anyone over the age of 75. And at the beginning, it's all very matter-of-fact, very methodical. Volunteers get a preparatory grant to spend as they wish. Sort of, and There's a group plan for free cremation if buried together in a group. And we have in the background informational films about choosing to die as a freedom, that they will be there for you till the end. And these informational films like something in Blade Runner are playing in the background. Here is a clip. So it's very low-key, and for those who couldn't see that, not watching the, this on YouTube, but listening to it, essentially what you have is an old woman sitting in a waiting room and this this information film in which somebody's saying, oh, yes, well, it's great, I'm going to choose, you know, the time of my death. You know, we don't choose when to come into the world, but what my family will say about me is she shows this is all very Soylent Green. Um, Explain what and, you mean by that. Uh, well, Soylent Green is a, you know, kind of dystopian future fantasy in which one of the things which is on offer is, you know, is state-sponsored euthanasia because they're just trying to deal with the population crisis. And then the the sort of central character we see uh, losing an apartment, um, no joy with welfare. Everywhere she goes, there are Plan 75 flyers. She ends up in a soup kitchen in which somebody comes and says, you know, can I talk to you about Plan 75? And... She discovers that if you sign up for Plan 75, one of the things that you get is 15 minutes on the phone twice a week with a Plan 75 operative to whom you can talk. And there is this heartbreaking sense that what happens is she finds a friend in the phone operative who is part of this program who 15 minutes twice a week, she can talk to her. 
And then they meet and then they go bowling and she smiles and laughs for the first time. And the irony of all of this is that perhaps she's suddenly being presented with an argument to, to want to carry on. It's a very, very moving and affecting film. I mean, it's doing the thing that science fiction does best, which is that it's taking a sort of real world situation and, you know, multiplying it, fantasizing it, turning it into, a, you know, a science fiction fantasy. But it has its roots in a, you know, something which is recognisable. It's terribly distressing, but it's very, very low-key, and it also actually allows itself to have um, moments of redemption in its in its later sections. There are also these, the adverts going on in the background have that kind of really dark, satirical jokiness that you see in the adverts in, in Robocop, for example. Anyway, I was... I didn't know what to expect at all because the subject matter sounded, you know, very, very, very dark. And it is dark, but it is doing all the stuff that that I think that that science fiction... I mean, I, some people would argue this isn't a science fiction film. It's just a sort of, you know, realist dystopian satire. But um, it does that... It, it has that thing about it's an imagined world that is actually about this world. And it's very, very low-key and very, very moving and very interesting soundtrack, which is ambient and kind of gives you the sense of something brooding in the background. And I think it's politically astute and uh, really well worth seeing. It's called Plan 75. So it sounds as though it's not sensationalist at all. Not at all, not in the slightest bit. It is absolutely completely low-key, and that's the thing that makes it chilling. It kind of adds to the debate, the ongoing debate, which would take ages, about dignity and death and people who are campaigning for some degree of choice. So it adds to that rather than takes it away. I think it is more to do with um, a society that does not know how to deal with with a large section of its population. I think it's it's less about uh, the right to decide and more about the right to be overlooked. If I've remembered this right, I think Japan has, according to the stats, has the most, has the population which is aging the most. Exactly, which is why this is kind of rooted in a very, and as I said, the thing begins with what is you know, a hate crime, a very violent hate crime that the government then responds to by introducing right. Plan 75. So the whole thing is framed within that context. Uh, sounds fascinating. So that's Plan 75. Um, also, uh, in this particular podcast, Mark will be reviewing these films. I will be reviewing still a Michael J. Fox movie, which is a film about Michael J. Fox, and Book Club, the next chapter. Both of those films have colons. They so do. Still colon, the Michael J. Fox movie, Book Club, colon, the next chapter. Too much punctuation, I think. Anyway, we'll be back before you can say, Es ist nicht genug zu wissen, man muss auch anwenden. Es ist nicht genug zu wollen, man muss auch tun. Which, as you know, is Goethe. Knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough. We must do. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so. would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again. 
This is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware, and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Mayo. That's Indeed.com slash Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. And we're back. Um, we're not talking about succession this week, but have you seen the new one? I have. Mm. It's interesting. What do you want to no, say? Well, it's out. It's out. It's out in the. It's out in the ether. So we can, the only thing I want to you know, say is how incredible that we've come this far. And I don't think anybody really knows where it's going to finish. Where it's going. And and there's only like three, four, is it four more episodes left? Because we've just done seven, isn't it? Seven's the one that's just happened. Is there ten? I think so. I think it's ten. I think it's ten. Yeah. Which which just means that every single minute. Didn't you think, okay, but I think we can talk about this because it's out there in the ether now. Didn't you think the scene with Tom and Shiv on the balcony was absolute perfect example of I don't know how to feel about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it re- references back to last week's uh, podcast with our fan of Entourage. Um, and again, I thought it was conclusive proof that uh, the genius of the program is that we're watching the lives of the rich and famous and they disgust us, but we can't wait to find out what happens next, you know? So we're, we're right on board with the drama. Um well, it's the thing is that you know you can make you can make a brilliantly engaging drama about utterly unengaging, horrible people, and the genius is how you do it and how you how you approach it. I mean, I I still hold, I know this is not a popular view that Tom is actually the worst yeah, yeah. of all of them because you know my and my you know friends and family keep saying no, but don't you feel you know he's he's he just wants love and he well, you know he doesn't know he's an absolute greasy pole climber and you know he he's he's in a way he's the worst because he's he's opted in as opposed to anything else you know but yeah i think the genius of it is that you can't you can't come down on either side on any 19 is a useless observation but in 1920s germany both greg 
and Tom would have joined the SS. So that's that's what I think. Enthusiastically. Yes. Because they, because it would have been the career path that would have. I mean, I know that everyone thinks that Tom. And incidentally, when I'm saying this about the characters, I think the performances. I think the performances across the board are brilliant, but the performances of Tom and Greg are genius because you just don't know how to process that kind of mixture of pathetic neediness and absolute venal you know, greasy pole cloth. Anyway, the, um, when when the series finishes, we will return, obviously, and discuss this properly. Uh, it's box office top 10 time. Um, at number 22, The Blue Caftan. Which I really liked. Uh, we reviewed oh, I, this. Hang on, uh, I've skipped. Uh, to be honest, because my pages are in the wrong order. So I've done a, I've done a Kermo. <laughs> okay, so you've done a me. Box office top 10. <laughs> at number 73, Harker. Which is a sort of very harrowing Tunisian <laughs> drama, which is inspired by, you know, a, a, a real story and real events. The film has real documentary grit to it. Very, very unflinching. And he kind of, you know, goes on a, on an arc towards an inevitable tragedy. And it's, I thought it was, it was very good, but very, very edgy. Number 37, Pam Fear. Which is the Ukrainian drama, which we spoke about, I think, again last week, which is a really, really interesting film, um, not just because of the circumstances under which it was made, but also because it tells this kind of, this story, which on the one hand has has a lot of grit to it, but also has a fairy tale element. We played a clip from the film last week, which was the, the three main characters walking through a wood. And they start making animal noises. And it is like suddenly we're in a Grimm's fairy tale in the middle of this kind of very realistic situation. I thought it was terrific. And again, you know, the soundtrack does so much to to make the film grip. Uh, so now we finally get to The Blue Caftan, which is at number 22, <laughs> Callum in South London. <clears throat> I hope this doesn't read as a criticism because it is not intended that okay. way. But I wanted to Go point ahead. out something that struck me about Mark's review of Blue Caftan last week which is reflective of a lot of films and conversations more generally. In his review, Mark said that the main character was married to a woman, but that his looking longingly at other men and his relationships reveal that he is actually gay and that they are estranged to a degree because of this. I am paraphrasing slightly, says Callum. Now, I haven't seen the film, uh, and this may be stated explicitly uh, that he is gay but trapped in a marriage to a woman. But as a bisexual man, I feel I have to point out that this erases the not indistinct possibility that he too is bisexual. Too often, same-sex attraction, especially in men, is seen to take over someone's sexuality completely, meaning that they must be gay. And any opposite gender relationships are dalliances or past mistakes or marriages of convenience. Bisexuality is often forgotten. This is especially true of men. The overwhelming majority of bisexual representation on screen is of women, historically with a healthy dose of male gaze. And portrayals of bisexual men are often far from flattering. Hopefully this doesn't come across as a rebuke because you've both sensitively handled discussions of sexuality of gender and sexuality in the past, but instead as a gentle reminder to you and others that we do exist. Thank you both for your witterings, especially in the bonus takes, and to the top-notch production team. Uh, Callum, needlessly praising our very fine production team, who seem to be getting as m as much praise as we do. But anyway, certainly in the certainly in the emails that get through to on air, yes. which tells you all you need to know. No, look, thanks for the email. Um, uh, what I would say is uh, the way in which the film presents this circumstance is, 
And I think you'd have to see the film to get this in terms of, you know, what's explicitly said and what is inexplicitly stated. Essentially, they have discussions about the fact that he has wrestled with his uh, sexuality throughout their marriage, but she knows and she understands that that's the case. And um, she, she, she still thinks she loves him, and still thinks, as she says, you know, I've never met a more honourable man. And he says to her, "I have tried, I have tried to suppress it, I have tried to overcome it." Now, that is not to say, I mean, you know, as we all know, sexuality is a spectrum, and all the rest of it. In terms of the approach of the film. The, the film definitely presents somebody whose marriage marriage exists despite the fact that they don't appear to have a sexual um, uh, relationship that is untroubled by by he seems to be more attracted to men than he is to women. Um, and whether you call that gay or bisexual, you know, whatever it is, um, it, the film doesn't need to specify it. So, you know, apologies if I was simplifying for the purpose. Having seen of the movie, thing, is I, it possible uh, that he's bisexual as opposed to gay? Of course, yeah. it's possible. Okay. Of course, mm -hmm. it is. Yes, I mean, absolutely. You know, they have they have physical relationships, and uh, as you know, we are all polymorphously perverse, and we are all on a spectrum of sexuality that is, in my opinion, fluid. Um, but you know, so at no point in the movie do they actually define exactly what it is. And so, but I take your point entirely. But you should see the film because it's kind of interesting the way in which it discusses and visualises that issue. And uh, number 10, we are actually now in the 10, is Return to Soul. Which I thought was really, really terrific. The most extraordinary thing about it is that Park Ji-min, who is the, plays the central character, who is... Uh, uh, an adoptee who has grown up in France who returns to Korea for the first time since she was adopted is played by Park Jimin and she's not an actor and she wasn't an actor before this. She's a visual artist and she had some <laughs> biographical similarities, passing similarities with the character, but it's the first time she's ever acted and it is an absolutely extraordinary performance. And it just goes to show... We overlook casting so much, you know, we think that the, it, the genius of that film is that the director knew, David Cho knew that she was the person that he wanted okay. for the role, despite the fact that she had no acting experience and she stepped up to the challenge and is brilliant. Uh, email from Do Won Shin, dear BTS and Gangnam Style, I think I'll be Gangnam Style. I am a heritage list of born and raised in Seoul, South Korea, and I write to you regarding Return to Seoul. After listening to Mark's review, uh, which was because uh, Return to Seoul was released in South Korea this weekend, I decided to go yeah. and watch it. It was a bizarre experience, in a good way, to watch a film made by a Cambodian French director with a leading French Korean actor with a bunch of well-known Korean actors as a supporting role, which was French-Korean co-production. Everything was weird but familiar, with seemingly slightly Southeast Asian-like nightscapes, but also... Eye-scorching, neon lights written in Korean words reflected on the windows of cars at the same time. The Can I just put one, one, one it's, it's a French-Korean uh, Cambodian production because it was Cambodia's entry right. for the foreign language film Oscar. The main protagonist dancing in the club holding a bottle of soju, which is a typical Korean spirit, yes. which is normally drunk in <laughs> restaurants but not at clubs, was the most weird thing I've ever seen in my movie experience. Later on, when Freddie takes a cab from Seoul to... 
I hope that's Jeonju, to visit a certain place yes. which would have taken a fair four-hour drive. I simply imagine she must have paid tons of money for that drive. But what touched me the most was the conversation between Freddie and her paternal family through translation. This is the most accurate depiction of the homogenous and conservative Christian family of Korea ever in foreign production. In the meantime, I could witness Freddie's raw anger, mitigated by the translator's polite Korean way of translation. The fact the translator yeah. was a woman added to the frustration that in a traditional and also, and also in contemporary on some level Korean society, women are often asked to be docile. So naturally, Freddie and her family, including his bi biological father, couldn't have... Uh, couldn't have exact communication from the first place. And I think this was the core theme of the movie from the start, where Freddie talks about interpreting the music notes from the first glance. It takes a pretty good amount of time and struggle for a person to really connect to the foreign culture. Uh, anyway, uh, Doan Shin says, keep up the good work. Hello to Jason, up with Bluehead Feminist and all that, and down with so-and-so. P.S. By accident, I watched this film as a double bill with Rice Boy Sleeps, which was a movie about the Korean diaspora in Canada. Uh, and though it was a nicely matched film, it was quite stressful. So anyway, also <laughs> on this subject. That's a, it's a, that's a lovely email. Thank you so much for that. that it, it, is, it is really fascinating that he's a Cambodian French filmmaker. She is a French Korean actress, and it was Cambodia's entry for the 95th Academy Awards. I mean, it is just in terms of the kind of the, a cross-cultural film with a cross-cultural heritage, it's really fascinating. Uh, number nine is Jody. Yes, which I haven't seen. I'm sorry, that's a new release, but it wasn't press screen. I haven't seen it. Number eight is uh, Pony and Selvan 2. Again, we talked about this last week. Wasn't press screened. We'll try and catch up with it. But I'm currently trying to catch up with Evil Dead Rise, which I still haven't done because it's been a complicated week. Uh, number seven uh, in the UK, number eight in America is Air. It's all about the shoe. Uh, six in this country, seven in America, Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Much more fun than anybody had any right to expect, and it's done very, very well and more than washed its face at the box office. Number five here, John Wick, Chapter Four. Uh, if you go and see it, prepare. you must stay, obviously, right to the end and not leave 90 seconds before it finishes, as I had to. <laughs> Are you going to go back and watch the whole thing that's, all that's over again? Me. I think I might wait till it's on uh, streaming just to watch <laughs> the final 90 seconds to realise that um, I shouldn't have left. Um, so that's number five. Number four is The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. Which I think you and I both liked. I, It was fascinating uh, talking to Penelope Wilton about it because she talks so eloquently about it. Um, it is definitely one of those films that when you're watching it, it, it doesn't have as much impact as it does a week or so later. And certainly, you know, I've been listening to the soundtrack and those uh, songs, which I think are really, really moving songs. And I've been thinking about scenes from the film that when I was watching it, they just seemed to sort of, I mean, it it does that really clever thing about it gets under your skin without you realising that it's doing it. And it, it's, it has more profundity than it seems to have at the time. And I also think I will stand by my comparison. That there is a lot of life of Brian in the idea of him doing this walk and suddenly picking up these pilgrims whom he does not want to follow him. And yet they have decided that they are going to because, well, they've decided. Yes. <clears throat> and if you missed the Penelope Wilton conversation, that's uh, available still, obviously, uh, from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, number one here, number one in the States, Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I'll do some uh, emails and then you can go again. 
Simon... Eight. Uh, so, no, so you've just jumped from number four to number one? Yeah, actually, that's all over. Okay. Why, why did you do that? on page 13, that's what it does. But I will now fill in the gaps, which you very <laughs> eloquently pointed out that um, I jumped... Well, sorry, well, we've already said I haven't yet seen Evil Dead Rise. Which I, I, Have we got any emails about it? Because everyone thinks it's brilliant, and I'm the only person who hasn't seen it at the moment. Uh, no. Okay, well, Evil Dead Rise sounds absolutely fabulous, and I'm going to go and see it, particularly after uh, Robbie's review of it. He was, uh, he was very enthusiastic, so I'm going to go and see it. Number two, Super Mario Brothers, uh, the movie. <laughs> How much has it taken uh, now? It has taken... 42,000. Seven hundred dunning amounts of money. Yeah. So there'll be another I mean, one. It's all right. Uh, and as I was saying, number one here and number one in the states is uh, Guardians of the Galaxy three. Simon, which is oh, I'll, sorry, you I'll read first. out some emails and then you can yeah, yeah. jump in. Yeah. Simon right. Zek, Dick Root and Rocket just got in from watching Guardians of the Galaxy three at the Dome in Worthing, which is one of my favourite old cinemas. A lovely cinema. Hello, Dave Norris. I took my eldest, who's 17, and we sat in the front row as we do for every Marvel movie, and we've done that since he was little. Each time I fear it'll be our last outing as he gets too cool for this kind of malarkey. The last few Marvels have been tiring and hard work and just hard to convince that they are worth persisting with. I went in with trepidation to the latest Guardians, hoping not to be disappointed. Well, from the moment Tom York's voice... And the acoustic rendition set the scene I was mesmerised. I grinned from ear to ear, laughed out loud, spent the last ten minutes with tears in my eyes. Turns out we are not all Avengers after all, predominantly white, predominantly male and predominantly superpowered. In fact, we're all Guardians, a rag-bagged rabble of misfits and freaks, a broken family with failings and foibles, but we all have our place in the family. United we are stronger than anyone and love binds us all together. This is what Marvel have been trying to do since the end of the Avengers series. No one is perfect. Everyone does what they can do for a reason. And we're all good and bad and deserve to be loved and looked after. And if it were, and if we are shown love, we can, we can and will be loved. Bravo, Marvel. Cheers, good doctors from Simon Zek, who sound, sounds as though he had one of the most enjoyable experiences on the front row of the Dome in Worthing for, for a while. Well, I mean, it was really surprising to me because... the. The the thing that defined the well certainly the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie particularly you know which starts with that kind of dancing sequence and the you know the retro uh, playlist it's very kind of very upbeat very jolly very funny the thing about Guardians Volume Three is that at the centre of it is a very dark very not funny story which is Rocket's backstory which is all about animal experimentation and vivisection. And I, as I said when I was reviewing it, I was found myself moved to tears, which I really had not expected at all. And it is a it's a credit to the film that that I mean, you, funnily enough, you and I saw Bo is Afraid together, and as we walked out of the Sony Sony, Sony. building in yeah. Paddington whatever, we walked across the bridge, across the canal, and we bumped into James King. Looking like and, he was 12 uh, years know, old. Yes, and we reminded him that he owes us his entire career and that you know all his success is entirely... No, he was grateful. He always says thank you. And then he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, this evening I'm going to see Guardians of the Galaxy. And he said, oh, it's a lot darker than you expect. And I just thought, okay, that's, I don't believe that for a second. And James was absolutely right. It is really dark, but it works because of that. Um, it's There are sections in it which are 
quite scary, although there are sections in Toy Story that are quite scary, but it's very moving and it is absolutely Rocket's story and I had not expected that to be what it is. I know that everyone going to see it now will already know this, but it, I, it caught me off guard and, and it moved me in a way that I hadn't expected it to. Just before we, uh, we, we leave Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Greg Allen's on our YouTube channel, which now includes full episodes. Wow. Um, I haven't been that close to wetting myself for a long time. Charming. Overall, I really enjoyed this. Thought it was a great final install installment. Nitpicks maybe a bit too long and a bit much CGI okay. mayhem. And Adam Warlock was superfluous. Other than that, really entertaining and had me tearing up many times. Almost forgotten how much you love these characters. Yeah, Will Poulter is never entirely su superfluous, but I agree about the character. And it is true that the last 20 minutes in which it goes smashy, bashy, crashy, you know, planety, thrusty stuff, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not bothered. But you know, you were you were very Roman there. Very what? I think very Rome, very Rome or Roman. Yes, as in very Rome, very Roman, as in Roman. Roy. Yes, that's what I thought you were. Okay, fine. Well, I, I shall take that as a compliment because he shares my hairstyle. He's clearly uh, been modelling his hair on mine. Is is that it right? It is okay. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover, such as... Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, uh, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on movie in the UK from March the 8th. As women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi are spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, smeshtions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Kermode. Uh, now, since the sun kindly finally made an appearance briefly this week, and there are lots of trailers being released, we asked you which films you're most excited about, because 
It's summer preview time. A lot of interesting movies coming out over the next few months. Pretty varied. Uh, we've got everything from Barbie and Oppenheimer and Asteroid City, Indiana Jones, Little Mermaid. Anyway, before uh, we hear Mark's predictions for the summer's big hitters, here's some uh, some thoughts uh, from you. And, you, of course, you can let us know your thoughts on anything. Correspondence at KermanAmeo.com. You don't have to praise the production team, by the way. Although, as Mark said, it is easy. It's clearly the way you get your email on air. Yeah. Just start by saying... Great production, and you're in. James Rodriguez, after two masterpieces, I will follow Greta Gerwig's directorial efforts to Helen Bank. It helps that Barbie looks so good. I'm also excited for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, The Boogeyman, and Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. For which we've already seen Tom Cruise throwing himself off a very high whatever it is. And it, and it is him, isn't it? And he did it. Yeah. Did he do it three times? Is that right? Did it, I think he did it many, many times, more than that, according <laughs> to the trailer. So, and according to James, that's Mission Colon Impossible hyphen Dead Reckoning Part One, full stop. Well, Mission Impossible is Mission Colon Impossible, technically. So that I think that that's probably right. But then with a hyphen for Dead Reckoning Part One. Yes, but it might be okay. Dead Reckoning Colon Part One. I'm not sure until I see it written down. The old sight and sound rule used to be that the, the the actual title of the movie is the title as it appears on screen, which of course becomes very very difficult. I mean, Last House on the Left. Is it the Last House on the Left? Is it Last House on the Left? And there are different prints have got different titles. Some of them aren't even got. Uh, uh, Hannah is saying it can't have two colon. It can't have two it colon. Can. It can't be Mission Colon Impossible Colon. Dead Reckoning Part 1, my editor would put a line through that, so you must do better. Well, uh, I, I'm told by Hannah that the the punctuation that, that uh, James has written is correct, that there is no second colon. Oh, colon, then hyphen. Colon, then hyphen, and then Dead Reckoning Part 1. Gary Clark says, at the cinema, definitely Oppenheimer, Barbie, and then November the 3rd, Dune Part 2. I think November the 3rd, you're pushing the kind of summer preview, really, <laughs> because I think we're into winter then. Although we're in Are May we, now, and it still? doesn't feel like we're in summer, yes. really, does it? Anyway, I think, says Gary, I'll hold off Indiana Jones until it's on streaming, not getting burned again like for Crystal Skull. On the fence for Asteroid City, I'd love to see it at the cinema, but my missus isn't a Wes fan, so streaming probs, mm -hmm. says Gary. Uh, John Somariva. Somar uh, John Somariva. Somariva. John Somariva. Indiana Jones has me the most excited and the most hopeful. Samuel Campbell says, I'm looking forward to Indiana Jones, but also thinking it might be a scorching disaster. Flash looks like it could be good fun. Maybe a bit of a surprise. David Williams says, uh, Indy, waiting for reviews and word of mouth. Yes to Oppenheimer. Bar an Oppenheimer Barbie double bill. <laughs> With the former in an IMAX. Spider-Man and the rest wait for streaming. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 was £16.49 at my local IMAX for the over 60s. I guess that's an IMAX, fairly standard IMAX price, isn't it? Yes. I, think? I mean, it is very big. You know, if you go to the BFI IMAX in the middle of London, it's the biggest screen evs. Lynn says, really looking forward to Bo is Afraid, despite the three-hour bum-numbing time. <laughs> Uh, Tweeter King says the Little Mermaid and Flash for biggest disasters. Someone who calls themselves Wes Pringle uh, just says Mission Impossible. And Anish Fonseca, can't believe I'm saying this when there's a new Nolan film out, especially one that could potentially be his best, but Barbie. 
You see, I so, think I think Barbie is the thing that everyone's most excited about. Ever since the first Barbie trailer dropped, as I believe they say now, and it yeah. was the 2001 parody, it was like, okay, this is this is going to be something special. Now, it's very difficult for a movie to live up to that trailer because the trailer was really so good. But everything that we've seen since then makes it, Look, I mean, I've my my hopes are high. You know, Greta Gerwig is a great filmmaker. It looks like they've got the right sort of satirical take on it. Um, weirdly enough, I've spoken to a couple of Barbie fans and Barbie heads. And bear in mind, you know, I grew up watching, well, not grew up, I mean, I, my children, one of my children grew up watching Barbie Swan Lake and Barbie and the Nutcracker and all that. So I'd seen a, a few Barbie movies before. But this does genuinely look... Really interesting, and of course, it is a chance for me to flag up once again that there is, of course, in the Barbie canon, the Todd Haynes movie, Karen Carpenter's, a superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, which was told entirely with Barbie dolls uh, way back in the 90s, still officially unavailable because it is outlawed under copyright law. I still think that you can't stray too far away from a Chris Nolan film. No, I mean, Oppenheimer looks like it's going to be... Well, it's firstly, it looks like it's going to be a Chris Nolan film. It'll be really interesting to see what the arc of the narrative is, because of course, you know, the Oppenheimer story is is one of invention and creation, and then regret, and you know, you know, famously, my God, what have I done? All that stuff. So, I'd be really interested to see where that where that narrative goes. Bo is afraid. I don't know whether that really counts as summer blockbuster because that's out very soon. You and I have both seen Bo is afraid. I think we yes. have, you can listen to our interview with Ari Aster, which is uh, on uh, last week's podcast in which I have to say, I thought he was in fabulous form. I thought he, he made, he's made really good account of himself. Not least when you said to him, introduce us to the world of Bo is afraid, which was a subject, which as far as I could tell in all previous interviews, he had stubbornly refused to do that. But actually he was really, he was really funny. I the more I think about Bo is afraid, the more I think the funny things in Bo is afraid are really, really funny. And there are jokes in Bo is afraid that I have laughed at and chuckled to myself since then. But it is three. You were the only one laughing in the same. I know, I know, I know. Mm. But I, th I think I was right. <laughs> no, I think I, have, I think in fact I was right it's got, in laughing once. It's got a joke about for the boys, the Bette Midler film, which nobody except me, as far as I can tell, remembers and you know loves. And it's got a joke about for the boys CD, which was so. Sp I mean, it's the very definition of a niche gag, and uh, yeah. So anyway, but that's that's coming very soon. So that's not. I'm just not sure who the film is for. I think it's for um, Ari Aster. Ari Aster, yeah, that's who it's for. <laughs> so it's like he's saying, I know I've had successful Hereditary and uh, Midsommar. That was very good. This one is for me. It's for me. And then, of course, the Mission Impossible films, you know, the gag about Tom Cruise is, what will he not do to entertain you? I mean, whenever you think about me, you always think about the gladiator. Are you not entertained? It's, okay, Tom, I, <laughs> I do genuinely believe that he's on some kind of weirdly brilliant but odd level, the kind of the ultimate entertainer, he will do anything yes. for your entertainment. Well, I'm wondering if he's actually not a human being. Well, I think many way. people have wondered that before. So, you know, to be the age that he is, and uh, I mean, honestly, if you haven't seen it, you know, the, you can easily find the footage uh, of him doing the stunts with the motorbike and driving off a cliff, which is just Incredible. I mean, he just, you watch that and you're thinking, no, he's definitely a robot. 
No one can do that. And there's all the stuff like in the previous film when, you know, he did the jump, the rooftop jump, and he broke his ankle. And, you know, the footage of him breaking his ankle is like, look how much he is suffering for your entertainment. He's absolutely, Maximus, are you not entertained? Yeah, I think, you see, I think the broken ankle thing, that was just a story, really, because... Oh, really? Because, yeah, because he's superhuman. He doesn't break anything, so... Therefore, that was just put out to make it appear as though he's human, but actually... Oh, you think not. it was just that was just a put-up job that, in fact, he's just... Has he got titanium bones? Something like that. Because <laughs> okay. the $6 million... Actually, $6 million man just sounds rather cheap now, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think <laughs> yes. get anywhere close. Anyway, um, there's, a, there's a lot to, to really look forward to, but I think the ones that... The three that jump out are... Barbie. As Barbie, Oppenheimer, and Mission Impossible. Impossible colon, yeah. hyphen, full stop. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, correspondence at Conamayo.com. Um, please keep in touch. Let us know uh, what you've been seeing, what you think about it. Uh, tell us about another movie uh, that has a colon in it. Okay, still a Michael J. Fox movie, which is a documentary by Davis Guggenheim about uh, Michael J. Fox. And it is a really terrific watch. Um, the Michael J. Fox story, which of course is you know well-known by most people, is that he achieved stardom I mean, he he first got you know acting gigs on television when he was a teenager. Then he kind of he got the central role in Family Ties. Though actually, it wasn't the central role originally, but he made the role that he got in in Family Ties his own. He was Alex P. Keaton, and that character kind of became bigger than the series. And suddenly, he was everywhere. He was a big star. Um, Spielberg and Zemeckis were making Back to the Future, and they wanted him for Back to the Future, but he couldn't do it because he was working on Family Ties absolutely back-to-back. So they started shooting Back to the Future with Eric Stoltz. Anyone who's a Back to the Future fan will know this. In fact, if you've read the book, The Movie Doctors, that you and I wrote together some years ago. What a, what a great work What a great is. work that is. There is a, a section about this. They started shooting with Eric Stoltz. They realized that this wasn't who Marty McFly Marty McFly was absolutely not. Not Eric Stoltz, he was uh, Michael J. Fox. So they went back to the makers of Family Ties and said, no, we really need him. And so they said to Michael J. Fox, okay, here's the thing. And the J, instead, he's Michael Fox. The J is an actorly affectation, which is to do with not having the, name, the same name as somebody else, but also because it was a, it, it's an affectation. Um, that uh, he could do it, but he could not miss an hour of filming Family Ties. And so as we hear him tell in this uh, in the film, he would start at nine o'clock in the morning, shoot family ties until five o'clock, be picked up by an Uber or taxi as it was then, that would then take him to Back to the Future. He would then shoot Back to the Future through the night, be taken back to his apartment, get three hours sleep, and then be picked up in the morning to be back on set for family ties. And he did that for three and a half months in order to get Back to the Future done. And he said his feeling at the end of it is, how can any of this stuff be any good? Because I'm just in a state of complete exhaustion. Of course, famously, it was hugely good. The show continued to be a hit, and Back to the Future was a runaway hit. Meanwhile, Teen Wolf, which is the, as he described it, the B-movie Teen Werewolf movie that he was making, ended up at number two in the box office when Back to the Future was number one. And then, in his late 20s, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And for a long time, he kept working, keeping that diagnosis to himself. And then, several years later, he went public with the, with the diagnosis and carried on working, and then also became a campaigner. And the documentary is him now looking back on all of that, you know, the, the success, the, the traumas of success, the dealing with the Parkinson's, the, the campaigning, 
all seen through the eyes of Michael J. Fox, who is one of the most likable, engaging, funny subjects imaginable. Anyway, here is a here is a quick clip from Still. I'm here to tell you that administering a successful research program is not rocket science. It's mostly common sense and the will to get things done. Thank you. Oh, I never actually said this to anybody, but I always fantasize saying it. Yeah, you're bigger than me. You'll beat me up, but I'll hit you once, and you'll hurt. I knew that moment. I wanted to be in the world and, and not take this and retreat from the world and realize it's what I still have to give. I find it extremely moving, no pun intended, to be here today. The Fox Foundation has revolutionized scientific philanthropy mobilized the Parkinson's community, and raised nearly $2 billion. You can see just from that clip that, um, you know, so his activism is really impressive, but it's the humour that he brings to it when he says that thing about, because he's standing at a press conference and because of his Parkinson's, he's sort of constantly in motion. And he says, I find this very moving, no pun intended. And, you know, mm. and everyone laughs. There's a lovely moment in the, in, during the interviews, the modern day, uh, the, the current interviews, and he's got a very bad bruise on the side of his face that's been covered up with makeup and said, what happened? And he says, um, well, you know, I, I, I fell over and I, I, I broke my cheek on the, uh, on the bedstead. And the guy says, oh, you fell? He says, yeah, it's, this is part of the deal that I fall. You know, gravity is real, even if you only fall from my height. Which again is a great Michael J. Fox joke, and sort of harks back to a joke which he makes earlier on when he gets a, an award quite early on in his career, and he says, "I'm so proud of this award. I feel four foot tall." And the thing about him is he's got incredible comic timing. That was the thing that made him such a brilliant presence on screen. And of course, one of the things that that, that Parkinson's does is you know will interfere with that timing. And so he talks about the way in which. Uh, he would develop um, uh, physical tics that he would use on screen to keep himself, to keep his his hand that was uh, that was in motion originally, keep it moving so that it he was able to perform despite everything that was happening to him. And it's you know every now and then you you find yourself in the company of somebody who has experienced great success and great adversity and has treated both of them with the same. You know, there's that great philosophical thing about if you can treat both those things the same then you know that's a wonderful thing and you you find yourself i mean he's you, he's an absolutely compelling subject and he's so funny and so um honest and so open and he has done so much and continues to do so much and he's all the way through the documentary you kind of think wow this is like being in the company of the best possible person to make you to make you firstly feel positive about life and secondly to to look back on you know an extraordinary body of work that he's done and realize what a brilliant uh, performer he has been but also now what a sort of powerful advocate he is and one of the things that doctors do you remember some time ago I reviewed a documentary called um the possibilities are endless which was about Edwin Collins and oh, Edwin yeah, Collins yeah, kind of, you know, yeah. sort of physically refining himself. And it, I said, really, it's a love story between him and Grace Maxwell. This is absolutely a love story 
between uh, Michael J. Fox and his wife, Tracy. And there are just fantastic recollections in it when he remembers that the thing that made him fall for Tracy was that he, when he first met her, because she's an actor, Tracy Barlow, and um, he said something offhand to her on set and she she called him a complete fruitcaking something. And mm-hmm. he said, nobody spoke to me like that. And he immediately thought, she's the most brilliant woman in the world. And there is a really, really moving moment in the documentary when the interviewer says to him, he said, how's Tracy? And he says, and he, I'm going to do this in injustice because it's, he, he says, how's Tracy? And he says, married to me, still. Which again, it's, it's the pause between the married to me and the still. That's right. And at the center of it is that title, still. What does still mean? When he was a kid, he was constantly in motion. He was, you know, frenetically uh, full of energy. He was constantly on the move. And actually, there's all these brilliant sort of clip montages of him running his way through Back to the Future and running his way through Casualties of War and constantly moving, constantly moving, constantly moving. And then, of course, later on, as that joke, I find it very moving, no pun intended, the fact that what he's searching for is stillness. And through the documentary, what we learn is that that stillness that he finds, he finds and I'm sorry if this sounds cliche, but he finds through his relationship and through his family. And the the use of clips is brilliant. There's, uh, you know, dramatizations and uh, family footage and really, really well-chosen movie clips. And I, I sat down to watch the doc not knowing anything about it. It's Apple TV and also in select cinemas. And I was just completely charmed by it. And, uh, Loved it, absolutely loved it. And uh, it's, it's called Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. And it's just a real bump, particularly at the moment, particularly, you know, the way the world is at the moment, just to hear somebody speaking so positively and so enthusiastically and so, you know, em- empathetically or empathically, whatever the, the word is, about the world. Having faced adversity and success with equal candor, I think is... Yeah, is is really remarkable. You'll love it. You should. You absolutely watch it. it. The time just flies by. I will make a point. Good of uh, uh, of seeing it. Now it's the ads in a minute. But first, <clears throat> time once again to step into our very very fabulous and much loved laugh. I'm sure we don't have time for this. Hey, <laughs> hey, Mark. I was reading a book about the making of Mary Poppins this week. Yes. I've just got to the part where Julie Andrews is telling the story of when the makeup artist used an experimental lip colour that made her breath stink. Her super colour, fragile lipstick, gave her halitosis. It's just... Sorry. (laughs) Even the sound of that is something quite (laughs) Quite atrocious. Had a very awkward conversation with the good lady ceramicist her indoors this week before she put it back out. If you love someone, you have to say certain things, Mark. And I said, your underwear is a bit too tight. And she said, well, wear your own for once, then, which was, you know, fair comment. She, anyway, she says she wants to end our marriage. Not because of that, but because I make too many Star Wars jokes. Ha! Divorce is strong with this one. <laughs> Maybe I was looking for love in all, all the wrong, wrong places. places. <laughs> anyway, it's not bad. That's I'm a sorry. Howard the Duck joke. What have we got still to come? Uh, the, the book club, the next chapter. Book club, the colon. next chapter. The book club, book. next chapter. Book club. All of those. Colon, 
the next chapter. It's a quadrilogy. We'll be back after this unless you're a Vanguard Easter, in which case that colour suits you and your service will not be interrupted. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Just uh, wandered downstairs to make myself a cup of tea, and then you were saying... Just in that ad break, yes, you know. Although the Vanguardistas didn't have a have an ad break, no, but we took it as an opportunity. I just noticed to, it, and you said that the back, your back and your neck are proof of the non-existence of God. As our teeth, to be a slightly <laughs> odd thing to say. <laughs> Thank you, Greg M. Johnson, dear Miriam and Webster. You shared a clip of a film where Korean people had difficulty understanding the name of the country, France. When it, was, when it was pronounced with an intonation which was foreign Fonds. to the local practice. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we just have to let the locals pronounce words which they have borrowed in their own tongue. This is what I think of when you two spend a lot of time trying to get the perfect original language pronunciation of words that English has co-opted into its own tongue. Respectfully submitted a colonial commoner, Greg M. Johnson. Well, it's just that try and get, get things approximately right. Yes, I mean... I I wish that I was better at getting things approximately right. Every time I speak to Jason Isaacs, Jason, hello to Jason Isaacs, incidentally, Jason oh, yes. tells me that he, that he laughs every time I pronounce a word wrong. And he says, and that's a lot of laughing. And I, it's true that my pronunciation is terrible. I wish it was better. I'm really impressed when people can just, you know, particularly when they're referring to... Uh, to foreign territories and foreign names, they can just slip between intonations, and you know it's a dexterity that I don't have. I was, I was, I met somebody last week at a, I was a, a thing in in Cambridge. Um, incidentally, while I remember this, I was at a thing in Cambridge, and a very nice gentleman came up to me and said. I was the person who wrote in the email umpteen years ago after you said that nobody intelligent could like Sex and the City too, and I wrote in telling you my qualifications, and that was when that all began. And I had forgotten that that was the, actually the origin of why people write in with the names. I had completely, oh, right. I had com- right? I had completely <clears throat> forgotten that that was where it began. Anyway, amongst this, uh, you know, esteemed company, I started speaking to a young woman who spoke seven languages but seemed completely unimpressed by the fact that she spoke seven languages. She just did. Yeah, a wonderful gift, if indeed you have it. It's an ear, isn't it? I th- I'd like to go back and learn languages. I think that's oh, what I'd like to do. I wish I wish that I had a capacity for it. And, and I think what everyone says is the key is if you start at a young age, if you, mm. like if you're bilingual, if you're brought up bilingually, your ability to speak more languages is kind of hardwired into you. Or maybe I'm just an idiot, but I, but I am an idiot, but I wish I could speak other languages. Stuart Edwards says, Hi both. I'm not sure if you're aware, but the wonderful Empire Haymarket is set to close for good. I wasn't Thursday. aware of that, no. After nearly 100 years, as someone who only moved to London in 2018, this place has always felt like stepping back in time several decades. 
Screen One has always felt like one of the grandest cinema screens, which always made new releases feel like a big event. Fortunately, it has been immortalised by Edgar Wright in Last Night in Soho, but it's a sad moment for cinema in London. Thought I'd share in case you or any of your listeners had a soft spot for that cinema over the decades and they were unaware. Well, I wasn't aware. That is, yeah, that is very sad. Uh, Stuart, appreciate that. Thank you very much indeed. Correspondence at KermanAmeo.com. Tell us something that's out that we might wander along to have a look at. Book Club, the next chapter. Now, Simon, cast your mind back to uh, 2018, I think. Book Club. Do you remember Book Club? Um, well, I started the Radio 2 Book Club. Is that what you mean? Nope. I mean the film, which starred Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candice Bergen, and Mary Steenburgen. Uh, is it Steenburgen or Steenburgen? Anyway, four friends who read Fifty Shades of Grey at their monthly oh. book club, and then it changes the way that they start to uh, to view things in in life. Anyway, it was it cost fourteen million, took one hundred and four million worldwide, so stonking success. Although yeah, I mean, generally, the, so. you know, the critics were a little bit mixed on it. So now we have this sequel. The four friends are reunited after the COVID lockdown. Jane Fonda's character, Vivian, has decided to tie the knot with uh, Arthur, Don Johnson. The friends agree that they should go to Italy for a bachelorette party. So this is the usual sequel rule. What do we do? Uh, Let's send them to abroad because, you know, it'll be the same, but with We've run out of ideas here. So we go there, but there'll be scenery. So... Their holiday, incidentally, appears to have been sponsored by an Italian tourist board. Um, everything is fabulous. Nothing is packed. No money seems to change hands at any point. And everywhere they go, all the the most fabulous glories of the area because they, they go and they go to uh, to Venice and you know stuff. Um, it's all it, it's all fine. They've each got their issues. Uh, Diane Keaton has got her ex's ashes with her. She can't commit to uh, Andy Garcia. Uh, Mary Steenburgen is fussing about her husband's health. She's been stifling him. She's worried that he's not healthy enough and she's she's obviously over-stifling. Jane Fonda is worrying about committing at all because, you know, lifelong not needing to get married is now the right moment. Candice Bergen is dealing with the fact that all retired judges do, as she says, that being all retired judges do now then is every now and then marry friends, which is kind of like, ah, you never you lob that ball there and we'll just see where that lands. They go to Venice and en route to Venice, they have their baggage stolen. Here's a clip. So remember that part in The Alchemist where the guy gets robbed and loses everything? Yeah. I have... No empathy for him at this point. Huh? No, neither do I. Well, he said he had a choice to make. He could either see himself as a victim of a thief. Or see himself as an adventurer in search of a treasure. Yeah, but we are victims of a thief. But we are also adventurers. Gondolas, uh, Venice, gondolas. Sunshine, gondolas. And now back to Venice and more gondolas. <laughs> Monty Python and all things. So during the course of their holiday adventure bachelorette party, they meet old flames. They make saucy jokes about, one of them is a baker, about pumping dough and um, loving someone's magic meatballs. And um, they look at statues of men who are, as Jane Fonda says, still rock hard after all these years. Um, They get into a scrape with their luggage. They get arrested. The whole thing looks like an overlit TV show. Um, Maximum mugging by the cast. 
directed by Bill Holderman, co-scripted with Eric Sims. The, the, the script is absolutely full of kind of quack, quack, oops, gags and gurning laughs. You know, the thing is, I... I I kind of, you know, I, I like the players and, I, you know, Diane Keaton is always watchable and it's just impossible to take against anything that she's in. Uh, Candice Bergen is kind of fun. She has the the probably the, the best role of it all. The the problem with it is, is it's quite bad. I mean, it's, it's, oh. it's, it's, I really want to like it and, after I had seen it, somebody else who was a fan of the book club said, oh, did you see Book Club Next Chapter? And they said, what's it like? I said, well, you know, it's kind of rubbish. They went, yeah, but, but what's it like? I went, well, you know, it's 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 kind of more of the same. It's it's The script is really ropey and the direction is really televisual and everything is overlit and kind of, you know, just flattened out with brightness and none of it rings true and none of it makes any sense but you don't watch this movie for it to ring true and make any sense it it is exactly what you would expect it to be it is it, it, there is nothing about it that is surprising the moment when they're in the train station and the porters come up to take their luggage you go okay they're not porters they're robbers they oh yeah then with then the luggage i wonder what's going to happen to the urn with the ashes ah oh, that's what happened to the urn with the ashes i wonder whether that eh, there he is and i wonder whether that guy would oh no there he is as well it's there's a place for a movie a, like that there is there? exactly a place for a movie like that um You'll find yourself walking down the street one day and you feel a little bit like what you need is some sugary chocolate. And you go into a confectioner and you want, I want a bar of sugary chocolate. And he gives mm -hmm. you something that is full of additives and poison and, you know, thing. And it just doesn't matter because it's what you a little, a little, okay, that's an interesting Well, you know one, what yeah. it is. You know, it's, like it's, not, it's not good for you. It's not going to do you any good, but it's what you need at the time. There is nobody in the world who is going to see Book Club, the next chapter, who is not expecting it to be exactly the film that it is. It is exactly the film that you expect. It is, on an empirical level, rubbish. But it is exactly the rubbish that it is billed to be, and maybe it's the rubbish that, that you might need. I, just, I so don't think you would need. Is it, it aiming for the? Is it aiming for best exotic? Is that no, no. Saying? Best exotic is Citizen Kane in comparison with this. It's a whole different league. I mean, it is. I'm not being funny about this. It is rubbish, and Best Exotic is not rubbish. Best okay. Exotic is a very well made film. I mean, you might you know, complain that it's a bit twee, but it's a very well made film. This is a very badly made film. But it is the badly made film that anyone who goes, what's on at the cinema, book club, the next chapter, I want to see that, won't be bothered that it's rubbish. What about if, it, if there is, in a couple of years' time, book club, the final paragraph? You go and see that. <laughs> the editor's note. I think what they should do is they should make a movie in which these four characters come to England and meet Simon Mayo's book club. Okay, I'm very happy to star in that. Excellent. I'll I'll, I'll make room in, in my time. Yeah. Maybe I, we could re record it in this very studio. Yeah, but rubbish. Correspondence at kermanameo.com once you've seen it and if you'd like to take part. What's on now? This is where you email us a voice note about your festival or special screening from wherever you are in the world and is the only feature that I ever introduced that Martin never complains about because he's not going to get embarrassed by it. I like it. So here we go with this week's correspondence. My name is Al Moon. 
I'm an independent filmmaker from Glasgow. I'm premiering my debut feature film, True Sickness, at the Glasgow Film Theatre, May 18. Tickets are a donation for eventbrite.co.uk. Hope to see you guys there. Hello, Mark and Simon. Just less than a week to go till we open our doors for Forbidden Worlds Film Festival, um, opening on 18th of May with The Terminator. Four days, 17 films, four UK restoration premieres, four special anniversary screenings, three classic Michelle Yeoh films, one eighth wonder of the world. We still have a few tickets and passes left on our website, forbiddenworldsfilmfestival.co.uk. Please come and join us. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, As I said, opening with The Terminator, closing with Starship Troopers. We look forward to seeing you there. So we had uh, Tessa from the Forbidden Worlds Film Festival. Uh, May the 18th, and Alan Main from Glasgow screening his debut feature uh, called True Sickness, the Glasgow Film Theatre, also on May the 18th. Thank you, Alan, and thank you, Tessa. Uh, Your audio trailer about your event, wherever you are in the world, correspondence at curbinamayo.com. That's it. That is the end of uh, Take One. This has been a Sony Music Entertainment production. Team was Lily Hambly, Ryan O'Meara, Sancho Panza, uh, Gully Tikel, Sophie Ivan, Basak Erton, Johnny Socials, Anna Talbot was the producer. Simon Poole couldn't be bothered to turn up because he had a medical appointment, apparently. But he's probably working on that Formula One podcast that we're not going to listen to. Mark, what is your film of the week? Still a Michael J. Fox movie. It's on Apple Plus TV and it's in selected cinemas. And I would encourage everybody to see it because it will. It will brighten your day. Thank you for listening. Our extra takes with a bonus review, a bunch of recommendations, and even more stuff about the movies. And cinema-adjacent television is available right now. Take three will arrive in your device's inbox next Wednesday. 